to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all, and uh, I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. It's my great pleasure to welcome Juliet Kayam uh, back to the center. She has been a friend for a long time. She has been uh, a faculty member of the Kennedy School. She is still as a um, expert on, on uh, Homeland Security. She is the person who is the um, the sort of the resident expert here on issues of security in all of its forms is now a media person in, in as well with column and podcasts and CNN gig and so forth and so on. She is a, uh, a, a lately, just lately, a candidate for a governor of the state. Um, and she is someone who really is uh, uh, been able to move between worlds in a way that's quite extraordinary because she has been been trusted largely with trying to explain the security world to journalists and my guess is to explain journalists to security <laughs> world people just as much. Um, uh, we're very glad to Thank have you, you here, Juliet, and uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you everyone for coming. I'm really uh, thrilled to be here. Uh, and uh, with Nancy, a dear friend, and Alex, as you enter your last semester, we are all indebted to you. Last semester at Kennedy School, that's what I meant. Uh, uh, we are all indebted to you for what you did to this. No. Yes, it's getting dark. Retake, retake. Um, can we retake that one? But uh, uh, I just, you know, as many of you know, when the you can't distinguish the Shorenstein Center with Alex Jones, and that's because of Alex and what you've done for the center and um, making uh, media and journalism relevant, um, not in and of themselves, but also as a, uh, as a public policy issue, which is what the school does. And um, I've had many roles, uh, and I'll talk about all of them, in particular in question and answer. Obviously, I have a media role uh, more as a commentator, an analyst, uh, a short stint in politics. I was a uh, a columnist for the Globe for several years, uh, and also have been in and out of government as uh, as the Homeland Security Advisor to Deval Patrick, and then Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security, um, and have served in a number of government roles related to uh, terrorism, counterterrorism, and then more generally um, Homeland Security. Uh, uh, and so I can talk about our security apparatus uh, as someone who has been inside of it, but also someone who's uh, been asked to talk about it a lot. In some ways, those dual roles, which I don't see, think are that inconsistent, really did culminate in some respects with the Boston Marathon um, and the attacks of the Boston Marathon last year. Um, it was, um, the response was an apparatus that I oversaw as a Homeland Security Advisor. I oversaw the National Guard emergency management um, and uh, uh, the funds, the Homeland Security funds that were going to a lot of the training and exercises that you saw put into place or respond so uh, eloquently, I guess is the right word, and despite the, the terror uh, in those days. Uh, it was a marathon whose security planning um, I had been a part of. Uh, and um, at the time, I was a Boston Globe columnist, um, immediately became CNN's uh, commentator, um, uh, which was 
bizarre to have them wanting you to sign a contract as there's a terror attack, but that's CNN. And um, and yet it was also my home. Um, the Sirenef brothers went or go to went to where my kids go to school. They lived uh, two blocks from uh, my house. My one of my son's schools, a public school, um, was the block was half closed off because it was where the Sirenef's father had had a um, uh, his uh, mechanic shop. Uh, and, you know, the Whole Foods around our block is the Whole Foods that the younger Sarah brother famously went to after um, the attack. Uh, so it was sort of my homeland, my home, and it was um, merged many different uh, roles I had. Um, I Just before that, I should say, I really did become full-fledged in the media trying to um, describe the world I had been in counterterrorism and homeland security when after my stint with the Obama administration, and I've had a very nonlinear career, Peter Canellis, who'd been the head of the Boston Globe um, editorial page, uh, sent me an email which uh, with the subject line, Boston Globe question mark, which was, I thought was funny, and, uh, and said that they had been looking for a columnist, a guest columnist, uh, to write about the security space, but also to make the Boston Globe uh, get people here to understand why all these dynamics in homeland security uh, and public safety were relevant to them. Um, and I remember having a uh, lunch with him where um, while I had done some writing, uh, I felt very uncomfortable taking on a role like this because um, you know, you're so exposed as a columnist and as a reporter. And I said, well, I don't really know anything. And he reminded me, well, you actually know a lot. And your job is to tell us what you know. And so what I tried to do in those columns um, at a time, uh, uh, I guess I was writing twice a week, was to show Boston audiences uh, who are worldly and sophisticated uh, how these dynamics in the world were relevant to them. And so got to travel a lot and explain why the Arctic melting uh, was actually relevant uh, to a shoreline like ours and uh, why the expansion of the Panama Canal actually was going to have tremendous economic impacts to us or even the Jordan, when I went to the Jordan-Syrian border at one stage, uh, how the dynamics in the Middle East are relevant, not at some 64,000-foot level, but obviously uh, for the state and its citizens um, itself. I should say, in that role also, I took on issues that I probably had not been very comfortable in when I was in government, which is women in security. Uh, women, uh, my field is um, demographically uh, male uh, and, um, and white and not very diverse, despite the fact that my boss had been Secretary Napolitano. So at that stage, I did take on a number of um, issues related to women, in particular women in the military, um, and uh, a push to get the Pentagon to change its combat exclusion rules. And in the column writing, then also for CNN, I sort of have uh, three three rules before I write every column. And, and actually, before I go on CNN, which is sort of say to myself, bring it home, because that's what people want. They want to know how this stuff is relevant to them. Don't create straw men, which was um, which is easy to do, especially as a columnist, to just say uh, the other side says this. Well, actually, the other side doesn't say this, you know, and to make sure that that your argument is um, sophisticated. And then the third, which I want to get into, which is uh, tell it to them like you're sitting with them at the kitchen table. Um, in other words, bring it home uh, again, but say it in a way that people can relate to. 
Um, and I learned that lesson not through much so much media, but actually my roles in the security apparatus. Um, having left it now, I do think that the security apparatus and the media have similar interests in mind, right? The common good and safety and um, of the public. Um, in different ways, of course, I'm not naive, in different audiences, um, even different calibrations of what the good may be, um, uh, Snowden in particular, or when I um, you know, got the dirty eye from every reporter at the Boston Globe when I wrote a column condemning the leak of a, um, uh, of what was clearly uh, a, a plant or someone that we had gotten into a, a terrorist cell in Saudi Arabia and there was a big leak and the AP had been um, wiretapped and, and journalists didn't like that, but as someone in the security space, I didn't like it either. So, um, but the common goal, I should say, to engage the public in ownership of something that matters so much to them, uh, but in particular to their children and their families, has too often been ignored. And I'll say this bluntly, we are to blame. Uh, the security apparatus is to blame for that. Um, and so I want to talk about why I'm pretty consistent in believing this and what I have learned in my years in this field um, so that those of you who report on it or those of you who are part of it uh, uh, um, can maybe uh, uh, learn something from what it took me probably about 13 or 14 years to, to learn. Um, basically, it's two words. Stuff happens, right? Shit happens. Uh, and um, on my end, on the public safety end, we failed miserably in this one clear respect. We deluded ourselves into thinking that the experts like me, the people in the field, the people who oversaw the National Guard and public safety agencies and were whisked away at a moment's notice, that we owned the byline, right? That the experts owned the narrative. Um, and we diluted ourselves, we diluted the public, and we created with the media, I think, a total lose-lose situation, which I'll get into later on. But I learned the, what the experts like me had done, you know, s you know sitting there on CNN or, or, or in our, you know, spaces in government, um, uh, through two lessons in my own um, experience that I want to share. The first was when I um, got an email from uh, my cousin uh, Karen. Uh, she's a little bit older than me. Um, she uh, has aided me in my dental, sort of horrible dental care over the course of a life of drinking too much coffee and never flossing. Um, and it was the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And Karen um, sends me an email that if you're a security expert, you get an email like this almost every day from someone or someone's cousin or something that you know. And she says, Juliet, I am, I wrote it down so you know I'm not, I, I, I've written about it before. It says, I am a little nervous now. Can you help? Debbie, her daughter, um, who was 18 at the time, is in Pennsylvania and heading for New York City for the weekend. Um, I just heard on the radio that they're nervous about a 10-year attack in New York City. I don't want her to go. She says I am crazy. I said I would contact you. And here's the kicker. Would you send your kids? By the way, how are your gums? Are you flossing? <laughs> don't forget to sleep with your night guard and let me know about the terrorists. This is <laughs> so it was an illuminating email because I realized what she was saying I was like, will you just talk to me? Like, just like help me out, sit me down, talk to me like I would talk to you about your gums and don't be all super squirrely and weird <laughs> about it and use all these acronyms that no one understands, just relate it to me. Um, and it was an illuminating moment because um, it was just, it, it was so, 
humorous, but also uh, so honest that what we had failed to do is sort of uh, relate to someone like Karen, and we're all Karens in the room in some respect. Um, the other big lesson I learned about the communication of risk and 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 terrorism, so to speak, or homeland security, is um, in my experiences with the BP oil spill. Many of you know I was appointed. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What did you tell her? What? Oh, I said I would go. I said there's no risk of zero. I'm going to get into that, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, and I would send my kids uh, if they weren't, you know, three, five, and seven at the time. But um, um, you can only minimize. You can only be a safer nation. You can't be a safe nation. Um, the other uh, sort of learning experience came from uh, when I was uh, the director of the BP oil spill. Thad Allen was the military head, and then the White House had appointed a civilian head. I oversaw 70 federal agencies and the five Gulf states um, and trying to manage just a horrible situation for them. Many of you um, know the BP oil spill, and I always say there were two BP oil spills. One was the narrative that many of you remember, which is, God, that sucked, right? I mean, Anderson Cooper every night and whatever. The other is the operational one, which was, uh, man, they saved an ocean, right? I mean, not perfect, not pretty, uh, but that narrative did not have to be written down. It was not inevitable. In fact, much of our slowness at the beginning was related to fear of, of the well exploding. Uh, but I was in charge of trying to deliver the news to a lot of our stakeholders, both in the federal government and then in the five states, five states that were run by the Republican governors leading up to a presidential election. Three of those governors were going to announce or suggest that they were going to run against Obama. So I had no delusions that I was in the middle of a political nightmare. Um, but. Um, uh, we were so focused on the horrible, so to speak, media strategy or in the sort of, you know, the, the, the White House and the Situation Room that we failed to bring it home in many regards. And I remember this uh, when I was down in one of my 32 trips down to the Gulf. Um, the many people who know Louisiana know that it's, it's run, it has a governor, but it's essentially run by parish presidents. Uh, and uh, there was a, a parish president, a Democrat, uh, who... Um, uh, had been supportive of us, even though we may not have been delivering as quickly as he wanted. And he, I remember he came up to me on the street and he said, uh, and this is the middle of just craziness, and he said, um, you know what I'm mostly, and I'm expecting any number of verbs, and he says, I'm embarrassed. I was like, embarrassed is a weird word. And he goes, I'm embarrassed. Here I am, I'm the parish president. I spend half my time in the parish president, half my time as the you know, football coach. My wife owns the only market in the area. My son is the middle school principal. You know, I am this community, and I don't know what the hell is going on. I look out, uh, one of our response plans was what's called in situ burning. We would burn the oil um, on the water, so it was very visible. And he goes, I look out, you're not doing burning today. Why not? He goes, people come up to me, they ask me, how do I get my claims if I don't have a, uh, 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 how do I get my claims into the claims process because I lost my job or I'm, I can't, can't go fishing or whatever else it was. Um, the truth is I knew all the answers to those questions. Um, and so did probably 60,000 federal and state and local responders knew all the answers to that, qu to that question. Um, uh, and this notion of embarrassed uh, really um, made me think about what we had failed to do because what he was essentially saying was, I can help you, right? In other words, if I empower him, uh, parish president, whoever else, with the information about what in fact is going on, 
that he can help, right? He can deliver that information. He can explain to the irate person looking out on the ocean, well, they're not doing in situ burning today because the winds were really bad and we were nervous about uh, exhaust coming ashore. Um, he could help get people the claims and the money they deserved or whatever else. Or, or people were telling him, look, I saw tar balls on this part of the ocean and, or this part of the beach and we weren't there because the beach line's really big. It was hard to, to figure out all the tar bars. So, um, and so we, the apparatus, were incredibly guilty on selling to everyone this notion that we had this, right, that the experts alone could deliver. And it was something that we sold the public and in very many ways in the early days after 9-11 uh, sold the media, which was this notion of perfect security or invulnerability, um, uh, flawlessness. Uh, and we sold it under the mantra of not just a war on terror, but this notion of never again. Uh, many of you remember that that is really what animated my apparatus, the Homeland Security apparatus, that never again, this will not happen again. Now, it's, as abs it's absurd, uh, and it is delusional, uh, and it's also, though, unhelpful. Um, I mean, think about it for a moment. Never again was never going to be possible in a country like ours with, you know, 50 states and hundreds of mayors, a transport, an urban transport system that has to run on time respect, sometimes questionable, I understand, for civil rights and civil liberties, a God-given right of every mother and father to order on Amazon.com on one day and get the kids' delivery the next, uh, that we are just too porous of a society to be able to satisfy the never again, but we sold it. Um, never again then started over the course of that 12 or 15 years, since uh, 12 to 14 years since 9-11, to take a lot of hits. I mean, one was obviously Hurricane Katrina, that a nation that was so focused on never again 19 guys getting on an airplane, right? I mean, that's essentially what we were focused on, was unable to save a city from drowning because it had not nurtured the, the response capabilities in a world in which stuff happens. Never Again is also very much responsible to Ferguson for Ferguson and some of the issues going on now um, in a world in which um, uh, prevention becomes the only uh, mechanism of funding. Remember, the Department of Homeland Security was sending out billions of dollars to uh, states and localities. It was tied to buying stuff. Right? So it wasn't, as a state homeland security advisor, it's very difficult for me to get that money to go to training and, and, and dual use and community integration. But hell, if I want to buy a tank, I think I could have done it, right? And so part of it then started to have that infiltration in state and local uh, police communities, which forgot the lessons that they had learned over the previous decades, which was community policing and engagement. That has also started to change. But I think the biggest problem with Never Again was that it actually didn't engage the public in any meaningful uh, way and wasn't particularly honest with them. And now this isn't to absolve the government of its responsibility, failures of communication, failures of intelligence, what's going on with the Secret Service obviously should be condemned and, and noticed, but uh, we have definitely had our failures. Uh, but when you live in a world in which success may be measured by fewer people dying, Right, as compared to, you know, you get to say things like only 20 people died rather than 200. Um, it's a very hard narrative to tell. Um, and so I just want to end with sort of thinking about some common narratives that both I hope that the apparatus begins to discuss honestly um, and that the media and those of you who are journalists who cover this can think about um, as well. Uh, uh, the first is um, there are black swans. 
right? And everyone knows the notion of black swans, right? So that there are just the freaking random events that no amount of creativity or planning or nimbleness by, um, by parents, by government agencies um, can stop. Uh, maybe, and, and the, the co-pilot in the most recent horror um, last week uh, was not really a black swan, but um, might have come close, right? So everyone knows the notion of a black swan. It is that, that unexpected uh, uh, game changer. And I think that will be a bit of a game changer about how we think about post-9-11 cockpit door security. And so in a world in which there are black swans, one of the ways that the apparatus and that the media can tell this narrative is also what lessons were learned by the failure to predict the black swan and the response, right? And so I'm big on lessons learned. In Homeland Security, we call it uh, the feedback loop of misery. It is something bad happens, stuff happens, people die, things go bad. And maybe the only way to uh, measure success is did we get better next time? Um, the second is that the standards of success are not binary in security, in particular homeland security. Um, they're not this went well and this, this didn't go well. Um, and I think I learned that once again with the BP oil spill. When I go back and think, you know, could we have deployed more resources? Could we have, you know, you can't do anything with Bobby Jindal, but nonetheless, you know, could we have done something better with Louisiana? I think our biggest mistake was not having the president go out early and often and say the obvious, which was oil will hit shore. Look at your salad dressing, right? I mean, what happened early on is we set up success as we're doing everything we can out on shore to stop the oil, blah, blah, blah. But, um, and therefore, the public and the media had the notion, well, if oil hits shore, that's failure. No. Less oil hitting shore is success. And the president's failure and our failure to say, you need to say this often, often, often. Be prepared. Oil's going to hit shore. <laughs> CNN's going to have that damn oil pelican on its screen every single day. Um, and I think ways in which we can describe success or failure not as binary, but as some variation of oil will hit shore and the success is less oil was hitting shore um, is important. The third is obviously something that we're seeing um, throughout society now, we call it resiliency, but it's really about layered defen defenses and redundancies. That when you look or talk about a, um, a, a system failing um, or not failing, um, that the way that, that um, this nation is beginning to adapt to the notion that stuff happens, it's sort of getting away from never again. And I think an interesting story or stories around that are how are those layered defenses um, working? How are those redundancies being built into uh, uh, the kind of world that we're inheriting and the kind of world we're giving to our children? And uh, when the risk is obviously not just terrorism. I mean, it's climate change, it's guns, it's, well, it's not really Ebola, but it's, it's um, pandemics. Um, the fourth, and this is where um, is what I learned and was pretty honest that public engagement is key, not simply as a communication strategy, but actually as an operational strategy. Um, Occupy Sandy, we saw it. It was awesome. Um, people, the media tended to report on that as a, as a binary once again, as FEMA was failing and Occupy Sandy was uh, filling in the blanks. Many of you remember Occupy Sandy sort of began to help people find homes. Um, the shared economy, Airbnb is beginning to do this as well, to find homes for first responders. Um, uh, I don't view that as uh, antagonistic, that if government can begin to embrace the public engagement spirit, not simply as, oh, we're going to tell you what to do, but actually absorb uh, 
people's enthusiasm for helping each other, uh, that that has been a success. And then the fifth thing is obvious from the beginning um, is uh, we need to tell these stories both on my end um, and, and on the media's end, or both, depending on who you are, is tell it, you know, as you would tell your best friend at the kitchen table or as you would answer Karen's question about um, uh, do you send your daughter. And what I told her is um, what I think about every day is there's no such thing as no risk um, uh, and stuff happens um, and there are things that we can do in our own homes to prepare ourselves and communicate with our children and families so that we are better off when that stuff happens um, but to go to New York City. So that was the end. So um, thank you. Yeah, but what about flossing? <laughs> <laughs> no luck. Oh, man. Anyway, I'm happy to take any okay. questions, well, but I'm thank gonna, you very I'm much. I'm going to take my prerogative and ask a couple of, and then we'll open okay, it up. Okay, great. One, <clears throat> when you listed those five things, are you speaking as Juliet Kayam, or do you think you are speaking for what you believe to be the thinking of this this establishment that you have been operating within. I mean, is these are these lessons that if you were a god and you were running mm -hmm. things, this is what you would tell people, or is this really the thinking of that I apparatus? Think it's, I think what you're seeing is a trajectory in the in in a change. I don't think it's I don't think by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's taken hold deeply. Um, in particular, there's different pieces of the, of the apparatus. So the intelligence agencies, I think, are abysmal in this regard. Sorry, intelligence agencies. Um, I think um, the response agencies are better because they get the notion of community outreach uh, and how that can um, help, help them. I will say a couple things about that. Uh, you know, it is, and I, I like bureaucracy, and people will think, oh, that's just bureau bureaucratic speak. But I mean, it, I think it does matter to have um, now in the in, on the national security staff a separate directorate for resiliency for having people think about and move agencies uh, towards thinking about what we call after the boom, right? So you have you know prevention, protection, prevention, something happens, response, and then recovery and resiliency. To have agencies thinking about, look, there's, we're not going to be able to stop everything. There's a million people in the sky right now. You don't think that like one of them might have something in their underwear ready to explode. I mean, that's, I think, so that's just sort of thinking about um, moving agencies to think about. I think politically, it's incredibly hard. Obama has tried, you know, talks about resiliency. Um, and where you're seeing some creativity politically to allow sort of is, is with governors and mayors. I, I think like, for example, Hurricane Sandy, and maybe it's just having a governor like Governor Christie out there. But I do think you're starting to see political leadership um, uh, begin to say, look, we're limited in what we can do for you. Uh, Hurricane Sandy's coming. Part of this is it's not a surprise. We know it's coming. Um, you know, it's not funny if you decide to go surfing. You will get arrested if you try. I mean, don't, what is it, what did Chrissy say? Don't be a jerk or don't be an ass. Like, it's true. And to get political leadership out there saying, um, not just don't be an idiot, but there's a reason why public safety needs the population sort of, or the public to act a certain way. It's not because, you know, we're the nanny state. It's because the fewer people like yourselves who are calling 911, the more you, you then reserve the limited public safety 
apparatus to actually help the people who really do need you to, who really do need you because they're calling 911. So, um, so I'm, it's beginning to, to do it a little bit, but this is the luxury of being out is I want to start to say, I mean, people inside have to come out and say, uh, yes, we screw up all the time. Yes, we, there are gaps. Yes, there are debates. Uh, but there's, you know, this notion of a, you know, am I safe? Like I love, cause I've amassed that on the media. Am I safe? I just want to say no. Like, what world do you live in? I mean, of course you're not safe. We can try to make you safer. You can try to make yourself safer, but that's all I got. And so... One of the things that struck me after the Boston Marathon bombing was that that was the, the big enchilada of terrorist acts after 9-11. Yeah. And what that did not do was paralyze Boston, yeah. not indefinitely anyway. I mean, it was a shock, and we had that week of living Amazing. through yeah. the search for these guys and all of this. I mean, and it literally was very, everybody here in Cambridge who worked at Harvard who was in Cambridge or Watertown couldn't leave their apartments. Yeah. Nancy couldn't let her son out of the house because yeah. he was tall and had dark hair. You yeah. know? Um, when you look at that and when you also look at what you talked about in terms of the resiliency and the, and the thinking that goes into anticipating what will happen if there is another... You know, if, 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 for instance, hypothetically, there start to be a series of bombings at shopping, shopping malls, malls. Right, what will happen to this country? Right. What, do you, what do you and your expertise and your colleagues think will happen? And what's your strategy yeah. for keeping it from paralyzing this country? So the strategy, so, I mean, obviously the strategy to prevent it is key. It's not, we're not going to be able to prevent everything because counterterrorism now is like whack-a-mole, just given the kind of threat and... and every loser online can pretend like there's part of something bigger. So we're in a world of whack-a-mole. We could be really good at it and still, you know, something's going to pop up. But I, I mean, so I think part of the grip that you saw Boston, um, uh, what happened in Boston, was uh, laid out in the years before, not just when I was in charge, but just a series of decisions made. So why, why did you feel, why does anyone feel who's living in Boston like we, we got this? Well, there's a number of decisions made in those immediate moments um, that um, were not luck. Uh, they were not Boston strong. They were, um, you know, as, as planned out as any war effort. So the first is uh, 31 seconds after the second bomb, because remember, uh, people like me think in fours. We actually don't think in threes. We think in fours. 9-11, London, Spain. So after the second one, everyone thought there's two more. I mean, there's just, you know. And um, so 31 seconds, and this was because of training, uh, the Boston police get all runners um, two blocks from the second bomb, which was which was further up from the uh, um uh, the finish line, um, immediately move them uh, from Boylston to Commonwealth Avenue. So, so um, uh, and begin uh, uh, family reunification. Family reunification goes a long way in grip uh, because people, if they are with their family, my God, if your daughter was watching you cross the finish line. So family unification became almost as important as the response that you saw happening. So that, so that in terms of grip. The other is obviously the capacity for public health um, apparatus 
to move from, um, and I, you know, I had jokingly written the year before, you know, the public health tent after the Boston Marathon is like the scene from Gone with the Wind. I mean, it's like, you know, these runners, you're like, I can't believe they did that to themselves. They're moaning, whatever. That tent moving now to a triage center. So that the one fact I always take away from the Boston Marathon, and then there's a number of things communicating and all those things, no one died unless you died at the finish line or were on that day. 600 emergency patients and not a single one of them died. So that, so in terms of grip, I think the Boston Strong had to do with the, well, we got this, right? I mean, they did something bad and, you know, yeah, maybe there's like an Irish zeitgeist that was, you know, part of it too, but um, we wouldn't have seen Boston Strong if 20,000 additional runners were running through 400 body parts for 10, I'm sorry to be graphic, for 10 more minutes. Um, we wouldn't have been Boston strong if another 200 people died. Um, maybe we would have, but you know, in emergency rooms. So, so when I say, what, how are we, you know, when you ask, how are you preparing for the whack-a-mole world that we live in, um, part of it is it's preparing that it will happen because competency goes far in Boston Strong. But this was an event with, with a, you know, a security apparatus in place. Um, you know, know. A, a bombing of a shopping center. Yeah. You've got local police yeah. and so forth. I, I guess what I'm saying really is not the immediate response. I'm talking about the idea of I'm scared I'm going to stop going to shopping malls. Right. I'm shutting down the economy. Basically, you know, the, the terrorists win the day because the economy becomes paralyzed. Right. right. I mean, I think then that really does get to the communication of political leadership and how they choose to uh, relate what it is that happened. Uh, so when I said, you know, in the early days after 9-11, or actually for a decade, that never again, I mean, that was so tight, so closely tied to a notion of war um, and a war on terror. And uh, we weren't allowed to say, I mean, it wasn't a rule, but, there, you know, whenever I testify, you're not, you, you don't say war on terror in this administration. I think that does go, but it gets people a sense that, um, um, that, that, uh, uh, that it's something that they can actually understand. War seems so scary and abroad and whatever. So I think a lot of it is, is, hmm. is um, uh, political leadership and what they're saying and um, also preparing people that, uh, you know, it's just sort of not a surprise. I mean, it, Boston Marathon was horrific and everything, but people like me thought, wow, it took... 12 years for that. I mean, that's success. I know it's horrible. I think that you said it very well. You know, it's, success is not none. Success is fewer. Yeah. yeah. Or less oil. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Open it to questions. I'm going to ask, to give students the first shot. If you're a student here at the Kennedy School or at Harvard, uh, you may ask a question if you have your hand up. Yes. Hi. I am Natalie. I'm a mid-career. Oh, hi. Where do you see um, some of the vulnerabilities? For instance, the T. Yeah. Are there robust plans underway that we're not aware Except of? For Except for snow. Except for snow. Actually, I, I do, do think you, the Boston Globe has a great story today that, that the way the T behaved or performed during the snowstorms was actually not inevitable, that other cities have um, actually adapted um, uh, um, better systems to deal with with snow and that we we were just clearly uh far behind so we have an infinite number of vulnerabilities because we have infinite numbers of soft targets um and we have and this is the point we've chosen to make them soft 
there's just no question. I mean, we made that choice, and that's a totally rational choice, um, whether it's the not, not having um, uh, um, stronger detection in an MBTA system, uh, um, uh, and, uh, you know, having, you know, just systems in which people are moving in and out of. So when I think about the, the risks, so I have risks and then, and then responses. So risks just very quickly. So obviously climate change and climate change adaptation. I, I, I think terrorism is obviously a threat, um, a manageable one right now, knock on wood. Um, uh, I think, you know, in my lifetime, climate change will um, change the way that we have to live in ways that I don't think that we're addressing. So it's a lot about urban planning and zoning and getting people to behave and live and, um, and, and build in different ways. Not forgetting that there's mitigation, and I'm all into that, but I sort of have to accept the world that we've had. And that is related to disaster management. Um, I have been a big proponent of changing the way that this country um, uh, pays uh, those who have been harmed by disasters. I describe the system, the Stafford Act, if those of you who watch House of Cards, it's not like that. Uh, um, the Stafford Act uh, was built at a time or designed at a time when um, people who were harmed by disasters were both rare uh, and, uh, uh, um, and random, when it was rare and random. It's anything but now. It's all the time, and it's actually not that random. So our system, though, was built on there, but for the grace of God, go I, um, and sort of thank you, ma'am, may have another, which was you build on Plum Island in Massachusetts, and oh my God, you got flooded out? How surprising. Uh, and then the next year, we do the same thing, and we just keep giving you money. So I do think that in the disaster relief world, there is an opportunity to begin to drive behavior by just saying, we're not paying you anymore. Uh, for the same behavior, but we will pay you back if you build the seawall, if you do whatever. So we need statutory change to that. So on the, risk. the the challenge for government is a different one, which is I think um, just just given how big government is, it's very hard for government to onboard and get used to technology uh, in a way that uh, will make us safer, but also make us more mobile and fluid. And I mean, the stuff out there from you know, our iPhones in terms of emergency communication um, to being able to get through airports much faster through more nimble metal detection systems. They're out there. It's very, very difficult, or it's just a long runway for government to, in the security space, to, um, uh, to be able to um, onboard and utilize. And so I think that's just a, a big challenge where the private sector is sort of figuring it out in all sorts of ways. Questions, students. Yes. Um, hi, I'm Beth Williams. I'm a recommended capital fellow here. You mentioned, you know, when a disaster happens, taking a look at the lessons learned and then, yeah. you know, and responding to that. And I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, when I hear the discussion though about the plane that went down recently, mm -hmm. you know, it almost feels like what we tend to do though is swing too far. Yeah. And we don't. We're not rational about the shit that happens, and we put mechanisms in place that respond to that specific thing without really thinking right. about what are all the other you know, variables. Other, yes. So how do we get around that? And I guess the other question, um, just sort of coming back to the media, how much of a role does media play in that versus the government in terms of, you know, overreacting or going maybe too far in that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. So, like, my favorite story is a local reporter getting onto a tee with a backpack and said, I could have had explosives. And said, yes, you could have. Yeah. And you didn't. I mean, I don't know what else to say to that. Uh, uh, 
Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of things in place to try to prevent it and lots of cameras and, you know, but none of it's going to stop someone hell-bent. Um, uh, so just to the first question, so as I said, was saying, like, it's very hard for in particular security apparatuses on the intelligence, police, and response side are inherently cautious and conservative. That's what we sort of like about them. Um, and I used to say about the National Guard here, who I used to oversee, we love them because they don't do politics and we hate them because they don't do politics because they would like do something so inconsistent with what Governor Patrick's sort of political bent was. Um, uh, and so, uh, so we have to be more fluid in a, you know, 14 years after 9-11. So uh, after last week, I was public about, you know, so two things. One is um, it cannot be that we uh, don't have the ability to have uh, one minor check on a system that had a single point of failure. Because for me, who builds and advises on building redundancies in systems, single point of failure is like that's what you learn, right? Like you don't have it. Um, and all sorts of systems are being built around having multiple points of failure. This may have been one with the mental health issue, but but um, so it can't be that someone on ground control or someone can't have uh, some way to get around that single uh, point of failure. So I agree with that. I mean, the other is, um, and this is just the technology thing and, and unions, and I know is um, there is something to closure for families who have been something. We, we say this a lot about the Boston Marathon trial. Like, why the hell is this happening? Like, he's guilty. He said he's guilty. Like, um, and but I do have become to believe that there's something about closure. I don't get um, the black box anymore. Like, and someone who's a pilot can explain it to me, but like, we don't have the capacity to just bring that same stuff to someone on the ground. Like, we're like, like 1970s archeologists, like, look, oh, the black box, where is it? It's ridiculous. I mean, we have these, um, and so, Part of it, hopefully, what this will do after so many airline crashes and not being able to find the black boxes in many of them is get a movement to say, look, we're not going to be able to stop every plane accident, but there is to closure, and there's also something to lessons learned. What the heck happened in that cockpit, but more importantly, Malaysia Air and others. Um, so I, I agree. You know, just a, as, a, as a parenthetical question, why would the Europeans not have done what the American you know, FAA did, which would require two people to yeah. be in the cockpit. Exactly. No, it's, 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 I mean, one is that. That was not an overreactive kind of No, 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 one is. Thing. Locking the door and now you worry that they're going to go back to unlock, you know. Unlocking the door, yeah. The bigger threat is obviously the millions of passengers on the air, not the 80 pilots, simultaneously 80 pilots. Yeah. But, um, and that's what we don't want. Because in terms of a safety measure, it's worked. No we can say this in the world, no pay, no passenger has ever been able to get into a cockpit uh, since 9-11, it's just known, um, but uh, unless welcomed. Uh, but if there's a single point of failure and why, we have- why, why did the pilot have some ability to- Yeah, that's what, or, 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 down or down below. I mean, we have the technology, but um, uh, <coughs> you know, it is, the, that's the challenge that I always say, you know, look, security in a global environment is uh, only as strong as its weakest link. We saw that with the December 25th attack over Detroit. Um, we could have as many protocols with uh, Europe as we want if someone gets on a plane in a country in which the transfer is not as rigorous as we would want it to be, uh, we're in trouble. And so um, 
uh, and so part of it is having universal standards, which never happened before because of a variety of things. Nick. Nick, hi. So one other thing, Nick Stein, I, I was uh, in OSTP for four years. Oh, great, yes. Uh, so, so one of the things that my colleagues worked on and my team worked on was uh, innovation in disaster response, yeah. working close, closely with FEMA and, and others. And, um, so I'd just be interested in your, your perspective on what was working, what wasn't working. I know the president's recent uh, hurricane review, yeah. actually innovation was the focus area. Right. Uh, and so thinking about you know how you can use the crowd economy, yeah. how you can do all those kinds of things. Right. So just love to hear it's, your No, it is. And then that's, that's part of the um, engagement focus is like don't, we're not, as government officials on the on the response or crisis management side, we're not engaging people because it's a feel good thing. It's actually they can help relieve the burdens on the public apparatus, which is quite limited. I mean, FEMA has 2,700 employees. Everyone thinks it's like this big army that's going to go save you, and it's not. It is it's a coordination body um, trying to get everyone engaged, and that's true of the community. Um, and so. Uh, so two pieces of this that are just totally exciting if I sound giddy, but so one is um, obviously the shared economy, both like Airbnb is now pretty aggressive on um, uh, satisfying what's called, we have emergency support functions in Homeland Security and, and there are 16 of them and one of them is housing. It's a, how do you get people, um, people housed so that they're not necessarily in public shelters, uh, but also a surge of first responders need to live somewhere. So Airbnb has been quite creative. They were with, with Sandy. Uh, there might be a role, for example, that, that we saw um, uh, uh, in this most recent winter uh, is Uber or the shared economy on transportation. ESF1 is transportation because it's so important to be able to move people. Uh, MGH and other hospitals will tell you, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that they didn't want to. They couldn't get their nurses there. The nurses don't have cars or they couldn't get the technicians to, to there. So can, is there a way in which we can move first responders through the shared economy? The other side is, of course, information, which is both in uh, the lead up, what's the science telling us, what's the, in particular, whether what's the um, um, uh, intelligence briefings uh, telling us, um, and being able to push that out in ways that are responsive to how people acquire information now. So obviously Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, but whatever it is, and trying to get that information out to as many people about what it is they should anticipate, what it is we want them to do. Um, and that's, uh, that. I mean, FEMA has moved so far in, in that regard. It's just people need to need to have confidence that um, that the communicator is right um, and and uh, and and sort of trust in what we're telling them to do I want it's to put a great, in a plug a here for, for journalist resource are you familiar with journalist yeah, resources yeah. because one of the things for instance the BP in the BP crisis we put up stuff right. that basically answered the question what happens when something like this happens I mean that was I'm sure one it's of the questions basic, that was being yeah. asked and having a reliable source for that that is not with yeah. cookbooks or crazy or advocacy or something else or uh, that's the purpose of yeah. journalist resource so yeah no, it's exactly uh, right. other questions yes hi, hi. I just arrived uh, at Boston uh, two months ago from China and uh, my question is that do you think Boston have the capacity to hold the Olympics? oh god <laughs> do you know my bio <laughs> so I'm on 
this was not planned. So I am on the executive committee of Boston 2024, and I am their senior security advisor. Um, I love Olympics. Um, uh, I used part. Yeah, no, about the. Yeah. Of the terrorist. Yeah. And now I see that there is no any um, uh, physical, not physical, but security system. Yeah. In the T, especially in T. So I don't see why. Well, so let me just be clear. That's true of any Olympics. So I, at the department, I had some funny dockets. So this one was my only fun one, which was um, mega sporting events. Um, and part of it was because they always had political overtones with the foreign countries and stuff. So like the Caribbean Games. I was the world, the world equestrian games happened in Kentucky while I was there. So I know everything about getting a lot of horses into this country and let me tell you jockeys do not like being apart from their horses so you can't have long-term quarantines um and so but that's true a mega sporting event so full disclosure i am a big fan of uh of trying to put together these olympics we obviously are failing to convince anyone else um but uh um uh look security in a complex system uh is going to be solely about is going to be about risk reduction um, and uh, uh, and um, uh, but also uh, well being welcome. I mean, you can't have an unwelcoming Olympics. Otherwise, why are we having it? And the whole reason why someone like me, who's lived in a space of sort of bad news, maybe it's hokey, but um, you know, the Olympics, for all of their flaws, are one of the last forums remaining on this globe in which people come together and don't really fight. Um, and uh, that that we would. That would be an honor for Boston to host. On the security side, I'll just tell you quickly because people ask about this. There's, a, I think, in fours, um, but this is a good four. So there's going to be four major pieces for security for Boston, which I think they can handle or we can handle. Um, one is going to be obviously the intelligence factor. What do we know is coming in and sharing with foreign intelligence agencies? And that will be run by the feds. The second will be response. If something bad does happen, do we have a capacity to um, minimize the harm? The third, um, uh, and, and part of that will be increased presence, whatever that presence looks like um, at sites and, and, um, and uh, uh, transportation facilities. Uh, it's very hard to do security. We don't have the sites yet. So it's all, this is all at a top, at a top level analysis. The, the third is what London experienced, uh, which was not physical concerns, it was cyber. Uh, London encountered 27,000 disruption of uh, service at attacks during just the two weeks. It doesn't even include the Paralympics. Cyber attacks did not exist, or essentially were not a known entity when London bid. So part of this is can we adapt to whatever the threat is? And then the fourth is something that people often don't think about with Olympics, which is, um, but, but foreigners do, which is like, really sucks to come into this country if you are not an American. It's a horrible process for many people in this world. So there's going to be a whole thing about can we have a safe and secure immigration system that lets 20 Pakistani athletes who just qualified, right, because qualifying is about two months before the games, uh, to come in. So every city that has a major transportation system, so Vancouver, London, um, uh, will increase the security on their transportation system uh, during an Olympics, and that's what we would do. It's what happens during a World Series. I mean, that, that's just part of what's called the ramping up 
Um, but you do so in a way that does not create a police state. Um, and there will be debates about it. There's no question. Um, um, but first, we, we have to convince citizens of the city uh, that this isn't just one big ego trip. Would you like to handicap the prospects of this? Uh, so it's ours to lose, I believe. I mean, in the sense that I think everything is lined up. Um, uh, I, I know the IOC well because I had to work with them for Vancouver and the Chicago <coughs> bid. The, everything is lined up. NBC, anyone from NBC really wants these Olympics in prime time. <laughs> it's about a billion dollar difference when you take it out of prime time, what East Coast prime time for them. Um, so everything is. Um, uh, uh, outside of Boston looks in our favor. Um, uh, but, um, and I think, I think the referendum is the right thing to do and maybe we sh and, and the process is just, was, was done sort of backwards. Um, I will say if we get through the next three months, um, uh, and don't lose the mayor's support, um, I think that we will be in a, in a good place. Uh, but I think that the, the momentum is not is internally not in our in our favor. So, um, uh, and that, that you know, that's we we have to learn. I mean, it's just it's just there's no question about it. It's, something's backwards here. Well, Steve Wynn got the gambling contract, so I yeah. guess anything can happen. Anything can happen, um, but yeah, it is. Uh, uh, we'll see if it gets fixed. I mean, there is there is. I will say, if those of you who now like I, I follow sports media, whatever, uh, because of the Olympics. You know, there is a rumor out there that the USOC is going to cut its losses early and say we're not going to go forward with Boston. That's the rumor that scares me the most. I mean, mm -hmm. scares me in the sense that then it's over. If we lose Marty Walsh or we lose the USOC, it's over. Um. Question. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this is following on the cyber yeah. that happened in London. Um, just curious how successful that was. And also, what about our infrastructure? Power grids yeah. and things like that. How do we manage that? Um, so, okay, so uh, cyber defenses were pretty, were very strong for the Olympics, I think, because they anticipated that this was going to be the biggest threat to them. I mean, there were other threats, obviously. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it was a known period on known networks. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know the system as well as others in the room, but, you know, the experts are, in, in those instances, experts can put up a lot of defenses and um, redundancies. And so that's what any system that's being built will do at this stage. But the, the, the bigger point you make, which is um, infrastructure and our capacity to communicate or have energy and electricity <coughs> all, abysmal um, in almost every part of this country. It is, um, and uh, our investments in infrastructure are piecemeal, they're not strategic, uh, and there's a reason why people in national security, homeland security, talk a lot about infrastructure because it's not just because people need to be able to live, um, but it's because it's a, um, you know, having competency at home actually is a reflection to the world that we are a stable, strong, competent nation. Um, and so, uh, and we're not there yet. There's some creativity going on in, in some cities like Miami, for example, on climate change and uh, to protect their infrastructure. Uh, but we're gonna have to make a major commitment, for example, to putting our wires underground. I mean, we're, it's just ridiculous that major urban cities are still encountering blackouts because there was wind. Like, are you kidding me? You know, like, it's just, you know, it's, um, and, um, 
it's you know it's it's but it's an investment we seem unwilling unwilling to make uh, for long term. Yes. Yeah. In infrastructure, we <coughs> these reports about the number of bridges in Massachusetts yeah. that are quasi-stable. Uh, suppose they're fixing the two over Charles if they don't get those done in time for the Olympics. It couldn't be. Anything. Yeah, but well, still can't be. As I've learned, there's too many curves in the Charles. We got to take it to another river. Yeah, so when I was um, Homeland Security Advisor, obviously uh, infrastructure is a big deal and we work with the Transportation Secretariat um, to uh, what we have to do at this stage given limited resources uh, and given, I don't know what the statistic is now, but 40% of the bridges were deficient, 20% were severely deficient, you know, um, very few of them are good. Uh, is now you just have to prioritize, and part of that prioritization is, um, uh, you know, the in my world the sort of matrix between risk and con consequence. And so I would be part of that process because, um, you know, I live in the motto "stuff happens," and that um, not not every bridge is the same as the other bridge. So the ones at MIT could yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And the, the little one near my house really is important for strategic purposes, you know. Uh, no, I loved it when, like, you know, if you follow Twitter, it's like when the green line was down, like, it was like, oh, the green line's down. And then when the red line goes down, like, all the cranky Cambridge people were like, the red line's down. And you're like, okay, the green line was also down for the last two days. Um, so, uh, and so that's how you make a decisions about infrastructure investment, um, because it is true that not every, like, you know, the, the problem with politics and security or, or, or um, our, our governance structure problem is the wrong word, and security is um, everyone has an equal vo voice, so to speak. So we have a home rule state, 351 cities and towns. It's just not true, though, that a bridge where 10,000 people traverse um, is the same as one in which 2,000 do, even if both state reps and both state senators have an equal vote. And that's part of the pushback. It's just, it's just the consequences of one going down to another um, are just so different in magnitude. Uh, but getting that through the political process is difficult. Do you have an opinion as to why it's taken so long to get the Anderson Bridge repaired. <laughs> the Anderson Bridge is the one over yes, to the Yes, the walking scale. one? Yeah. The walking no, no. no, no. The one, the, the one. Right oh! Right here on Kennedy Street. Oh, this one? Yeah. yeah. It's a very important bridge. It's a very here, important We have bridge. to make sure we do it right now. It it's um, the length of time of these relatively minor infrastructure investments is just shocking. Um, and, you know, part of that is just the way we put out RFPs and the speed is just not uh, one of our mainstays. Um, RFPs, the police details, all these things that begin to add up and then just delay uh, the process. So it's, I think it's ridiculous. It's so to me it looks like a four-lane bridge. It's like, taken longer than it did to build the, the new Freedom Tower. Yeah, yeah. I to know. fix that bridge. I know. Unbelievable. I know. Yeah. If you could just shut it down. Fine. Oh, then, then those Cambridge people will really be online complaining. <laughs> uh, you know, the red line. Forget the green line. Uh, Juliet, it was wonderful Thank to have you. So you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.